Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What happens when we die? What are UFOs slash UAPs? Are we really living in a hologram? Hello and welcome to the 1000th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you live from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben and that was Paul. And we welcome you to not just our 1000th show, but our 15th anniversary broadcast. So, we will get right into it and give you a little description here. On our panel today, uh, we have four legends who have helped us build up this show over the years. And uh, coming to us via Skype are three renowned authors, lecturers, investigators, and including astronomer Mark D'Antonio, educator and in-depth UFO researcher Kathleen Martin, and British consciousness researcher Anthony Peake. And with us in studio today is scientist and experiencer Matthew Moniz. And you've seen them all on as on-camera experts on TV, and you've heard them often on our show. Well, everyone, welcome, a very warm welcome to Behind the Paranormal. We have all been before. Yes. So we've had a slew of listener questions for today's show, which is titled Ultimate Questions. We boiled down the five most frequent questions, and we'll pose these one by one, and our panelists will answer in turn. Number one, the most common question we received, what happens when we die? Now, Anthony Peake already knows the answer to this, but he's going to have to wait his turn. <laughs> so we'll start alphabetically. Mark D'Antonio, what say you? Well, uh, having done that already, <laughs> um, I, uh, I had a very strange experience when that happened to me. Um, it was eight years ago when I had surgery went sideways, uh, and I had eight strokes on the operating table. No one ever caught them. And so I woke up in a coma uh, as a quadriplegic and profoundly blind. Okay. However, um, before that and during the surgery, I had been whisked away uh, to... New Mexico with my mother's Native American ancestors. And uh, I had a very strange experience with them, and they told me that the only way I was going to survive was to listen to them. And I said very, very nasty, bad things to them the whole time. So the question is, what happens when you die? Uh, to me, it means something more than just, you know, well, maybe we just start again, or, well, then I go back to the universe, or, or whatever. Um I think that there's more to it than that. And I don't know, Paul, if science will ever, ever break the veil uh, of, of life and death. You know, uh, and Douglas Trumbull, a very good friend of mine until he passed a couple of years ago, uh, did a movie called Brainstorm, in which they actually looked at uh, video of the uh, people just before they died, and they transitioned with them to that other side. And that was the, 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 the movie. Uh, it was a very interesting movie, very, very uh, profound for the time. And um, don't know if he got it right, right, but I do know that there has to be more. I feel there was, especially from my experience, definitely more, more to it. Okay, Kathleen Martin. Well, I uh, am very interested in this question. I've done some research, and I'm also a quantum healing hypnosis practitioner. 
And as such, I do past life regressions with individuals and have had my own past life regressions as well. And uh, most people in hypnosis end up sort of floating around in uh, some kind of dark space and there might be colors that come in before uh, they reach the point to where they're going. I'm very interested in life between lives, but I have not studied that. But I've read about it. And uh, people apparently end up, uh, the consciousness, of course, leaves the physical body, and they end up elsewhere. Um, and some think that the consciousness is always located in that other location, and then just part of the consciousness leaves when they enter the physical body. And that sounds reasonable to me. But uh, in this new place that you go to, uh, reportedly, we uh, meet with our soulmates from from this planet, and uh, we go through uh, a review of our lives, and not somebody else judging us, but we're judging ourselves, and we can no longer have secrets because everything is revealed. And it is a learning experience. So we go through these learning experiences for, uh, you know, time is different. Time is not the way it is here. So who knows how long it is here, but some people can choose to come back um, to uh, repay karmic debts, for example. and uh, Or you can remain there. You can come back when you want to. Uh, in order to attempt to live a better life than you did previously. Now, I'm wondering if perhaps uh, when a person dies, their thoughts influence what happens. And the reason I say that is that I've learned uh, to uh, move beyond the, the physical, in a sense, And when my father died, we were very close. I was awake. In fact, I was getting up out of bed during the night and walking into the kitchen to try to make this end. I'd never had an experience like this before. But I found myself, every time I closed my eyes, I was in a cavern with my father in a long line of men. Uh, who were pale and old and just waiting with him. And finally we came to the end of the line and there was sort of a man in a long white robe with long hair and a beard. And he was uh, sort of like a gatekeeper. And uh, he said, can you vouch for this man? And I said, yes, my father was a wonderful person. He Never heard him say anything bad about anyone. He did wonderful things for the community, etc. And he opened sort of the gate, which was the sky ahead, and my father just whooshed through. And so I'm wondering if that was my father's consciousness superimposing on my own and that these were uh, my father's religious beliefs, perhaps, uh, and somehow I became entangled 
in that. It was a very strange experience. I don't have the answers for it, but that's what I know about okay. what happens when we die. Excellent. Matthew Moniz. Okay, I can explain what happens scientifically, what, what happens in the body. You know, the body is electrochemical in nature, and basically what winds up happening is those processes stop. Now, Einstein says energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only changed. And we are only an imprint of our own energies. And getting more like to what Kathy was putting into, you create your own frequency, and then that frequency is now moved on into another state. And... Uh, I, I myself have done things like remote viewing, and I did it for fun, and I also did it for other organizations that will remain nameless. And uh, I had a personal experience similar to like what Kathy explained with her father. Uh, my mother died in 2001, and she died very rapidly. She was diagnosed with cancer on like August 15th and then died September 3rd. Very, very fast-moving cancer. And when she died, I went back to my house, and uh, several friends had greeted me to provide condolences. And my phone rang, and it had a weird series of letters and numbers, not like a regular caller ID. So I answered it, and I heard my mother's voice say, I'm okay, Mac. And then it just ended. And... She used to call me Mac, Mac Attack and whatever. So that was like energy being used to communicate through a, an electronic device. Now, this is not the first time I've heard of things like this. I've been doing paranormal research for decades, and I've heard of other people actually receiving, you know, crisis calls or, or kind of like what they're called. And um, I think Kathy's right. They, the the person that has passed on is tuned into that person's frequency and somehow tapped into it and allowed her to share what that particular energy was experiencing. Yeah, that, what happens when we go on? Like I said, our energy just moves on. The physical body is just material. It's just atoms. Energy is for pretty much forever. Unless when you're talking about entropy, when it spreads out beyond a point where it's cohesive. But, yeah, we all got to go somewhere. Okay, Anthony Peak. Well, I suppose I'd first start off with the phone calls from the dead idea. Um, and there's a, an associate of mine, Dr. Cal Cooper, that's been working on this for many years. And uh, I've come across one or two very interesting points of view in terms of this. And I, I, a few years ago, I wrote a book with Irvin Laszlo on this very subject. And I think the phone calls from dead were the one things that really intrigued me, particularly um, taking into account that somebody told me a particular interesting story about somebody who received a delayed phone call from somebody whose phone had been destroyed in a car crash that the person had been killed in. But I think what we have to do here is we have to start doing the science. I mean, for many, many years, we've just got anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. And as the famous statement says, the plural of anecdote is not proof. Now, it doesn't mean that these things don't happen to people. It doesn't mean that they're not subjective experiences. But for me, the question is, well, what is really happening at the point of death? And we have to look at the neurology and we have to look at the neurophysiology of it. We have to look at exactly what is taking place in the brain at the point of death, because there is still absolutely no evidence that consciousness can survive outside of a working brain. 
So the question we have to ask is, well, are we looking at the wrong subject? And my approach has always been to look at the different. And my approach has been, I think that the, um, the, the most important area to take into account here is time and the subjective experience of time and the way in which time seems to dilate during near-death experiences. For instance, we know from the Moody traits, we know from the, the Grayson traits, which are the standard typologies that medical people use when somebody has a near-death experience. We have the idea of the panoramic life review. We have the idea of floating out of the body, out of body experience. We have the idea of time dilation. We have the meeting of the being of light. These are various typologies. Now, in my research and my writings, what I've said is, what are these things telling us? If we put them together, what kind of picture are we coming to here? And I argue that at the point of death, what actually happens is that the brain is flooded with a series of neurotransmitters. And I particularly argue, I initially used to argue that it was glutamate, um, because we know that glutamate is the major uh, neurotransmitter of the mammalian brain. But effectively, over recent years and after researching with uh, working with some top researchers here in the UK on the role of dimethyltryptamine within the brain and also the effects of dimethyltryptamine, I argue that uh, what takes place is that the pineal gland synthesizes from dimethyltryptamine or from melatonin within the pineal gland endogenous dimethyltryptamine. And it is this which actually brings about the near death experience. It also brings about the slowing down of time. Now, again, research has been done with similarities between a, a particular um, drug called ketamine and the near-death experience, and the parallels are incredibly close. So here we have a scenario that there's something curious happening in the brain, and I'll give a couple of examples of recent research that's been done in this area that should be worldwide news and hasn't been. There's a lady called Jimo Borgigin at the University of Michigan, and they've they discovered in the pineal gland of live uh, of live rat meth, um, DMT. So it's the first time that DMT has been discovered in a mammalian brain. But also, even more amazing, was something that took place um, around about two, two or three years ago in Germany, where almost the golden standard took place where um, a gentleman had injured injured himself. He'd fallen off a ladder <laughs> and he was taken to hospital. And while he was while he was tied up to an fMRI scan, I think or it could have been a PET scan, um, he died. So for the first time, there was an opportunity to see what happens in the dying brain. And again, very few people know about this. It's absolutely extraordinary as the way people do not know about this. And what they discovered was there's and Borgigian has discovered this with her rats as well, is that immediately after death, within a few seconds, the whole brain fires up. The whole brain lights up and it's acting non-locally. Now, I argue that the non-locality that's taking brace in the brain is to do with the glial cells. In other words, we think that communication across the brain takes place neuronally. You're in, you, using neurotransmitters. But the evidence now seems to be that the work work, the world works on. Forgive me on this, Kathleen, real quantum physics, not quantum healing and everything like real quantum physics. The idea that non-locality exists within the brain. Uh, and that there's an immediate communication between the glial cells within the brain. And the whole brain fires as if it's recreating what is known as the panoramic life review. And I argue that the panoramic life review is where the clue lies about what really happens to human consciousness at the point of death. We go into what the Tibetan Buddhists call the bardo state. When we go into the bardo state, the panoramic life review takes place. And the panoramic life review is actually experienced in real time. Not in my life flashed before my eyes, but my, my, my life literally was a minute by minute recreation of my life. 
Now, again, if we apply the quantum mechanics to this, we know that the act of observation or the act of measurement collapses a statistical wave function into a point particle. Now, if this is the case, it means effectively that the act of observation creates the world around you. And in my books, I talk a lot about perception studies, how vision works and everything else as well. And it is self-evident that what is taking place here at the point of death is that we live our lives again. And we live our lives again, and we're going to be talking about this later on, and I'm going to be interesting, Mark, to have your opinion on this, in terms of the, the holographic universe and the role of black holes, the role of entropy. But the other point that I think is profoundly important here is to check out the work of um, Max Tegmark, uh, who is a physicist at the University of Princeton, I think he's Swedish. And a few years ago, he came up with a thought experiment called the quantum, quant, um, quantum suicide experiment. And in the quantum suicide experiment, which is virtually identical to the model I put forward, which I call cheating the ferryman, he puts forward exactly the same idea. If we apply quantum physics and the implications of Schrodinger's cat and the collapse of the wave function, you cannot die ever in your own universe. You are immortal within your own universe. You see other people die because you fall out of time, in which case you never get to the point of death and you go into this simulation. What... Um, my associate, Dr. Andrew Gallimore, calls an instantation. And Andrew Gallimore, where I were both speakers at um, Contact in the Desert last weekend, and we shook up a lot of trees there because the things we were talking about were quite radically different to the normal viewpoint of what UFOs are and everything else as well. So the model, I argue, that life doesn't end. It doesn't end because you continue. You continue as you. <clears throat> and again, your point, Kathleen, about life review, uh, the idea of living previous lives as other people. I can explain that as well, which we don't have time to explain here, but it's to do with the levels of consciousness and it's to do with an application of the Jungian collective unconscious <laughs> and the idea that we're all one single consciousness experiencing it subjectively. Okay. Ben? Oh. <laughs> How am I supposed to follow that? Um, well, I'll, I'll do my best. <clears throat> well, English is a terrible language, and I'm yeah, going... I make my living with English. Give me a break. Well, me too, because I'm speaking English now. Um, but there's a really fascinating thing that the English language likes to do, which is try and take other words from other languages and distill the concept into one word. Love, time, you know, all this stuff. And, and I, I think one of the really interesting things about time is that the Greeks had a really interesting idea about that. They had two words for time. Instead of just, you know, one linear thing, there was kairos and chronos. Chronos being chronological time, how we experience it, and kairos being time outside of time, or some would call it god time, or, or, or whatever, which would be the time in which the gods would do whatever they were doing. So it didn't really make sense in a linear fashion, right? So when you look at things mythologically, you're like, well... You know, when did Zeus come down and, you know, destroy people's lives and whatever? And it's like, well, it's happening, but in a different way of, of time, right? It's all happening now, and it isn't, right? So the layers of how, how reality worked, you know, they all happened at the same time. The political, you know, the economic, the anthropological, the mythical, all that was happening at once. And there's a really interesting thing that happens, and I'm going to bring up a personal experience. We don't like those, but we're going to bring that up. Um, so, a few years ago, uh, I attended a funeral for someone I cared about very dearly, and my father was there as well. And the funeral was in the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church. And they do things very differently. So instead of, you know, having a funeral mass or, or whatever, or a memorial service, they have basically the casket set up in the middle of the church, 
and it's facing the altar. Everybody gathers around it, but they leave a space in the middle. And essentially what happens is a trial. And the, the theological concept is that we're all attending this person's, you know, quote-unquote trial. It's a bad English word because it's not really what it is, but it's, it's the closest we're going to get. Because effectively it's an experience of experiencing this person's transition with them. And the whole point of it is it's not really so – it's really for the deceased but also for us. And it happens in, in sort of three different parts. And the first part, really, you know, a priest comes over next to the casket, and he starts whispering some stuff towards the casket and, while the choir sings loudly so that nobody can hear what's being said. That's kind of the whole point. It's not really meant for us. And then it shifts to the rest of the people there as sort of this whole experience with this person. And the idea <laughs> is that the deceased transitions into a different form of time, or a different f- sort of, you know, moving from chronos, chronological time, into kairos. And then what happens there, nobody really knows. <laughs> there's ideas, there's whatever, but they never really define what happens. But we do know that there is a shift in how one experiences things. And there's no mention of, well, they just disappear. You know, you put them in the ground, they're done. It's, well, you'll see them later, eventually, you know, whenever that is. But the idea is that you, you switch from one point of time into another. And what happens from there, it's like, you know, you can have a vague estimate. There was one guy that had an idea of, you know, there's these aerial toll houses that, you know, you need coins for. It was a whole thing. But the the idea is still not too different from Anthony's, albeit with theological language. The idea is that how we experience things, ultimately, it comes down to the subject-object problem and how we experience the world around us. And I've been really messing around with Charles Taylor recently, a Canadian philosopher, who talks about the idea of the buffered self versus the porous self. So the porous self being this idea of uh, sort of pre-modern thinking, where the the sort of delineation between the self and your environment is, is sort of porous, things kind of go in and out of it. You know, you, where you end and where the, your world, where the world starts, there's not really a clear border. How you interact with the world around you, it's like, it's, it's a give, give and take, an ebb and flow. And the buffered self is the modern way of thinking, where we put up a wall between us and the world, and we step back, and we observe, and we, we calculate, we take it apart, and, you know, we do, it, it, it exerts a form of control, in quotes. And effectively, when it comes down to this experience, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a rubber meets the road kind of thing for all of us in a way, um, because we we take all these things that we've been researching for you know a majority of our lives. For me, since the beginning of my life, thank you, Father, for that. Mm, you're um, welcome. And in a sense, it all kind of goes out the window, right? Especially when you're the one you know that's that's lay, laying there or burned or whatever, what have you, you know, whatever whatever your preference is. Um, maybe taxidermy, maybe who knows, you know. But at the end of the day, it's it's still it, we can learn all all we want about it. But at the end of the day, it's still a human experience that we all are going to have one way or another. You know, the great equalizer, if you will. And there's a really funny little little icon that was in our house growing up um, that I always like to point out to people because people look at it and like, oh, that's really dark. And it's uh, an icon of Saint Zosios, and he yeah. digs up. <laughs> He, he somehow finds Alexander the Great's grave, and he goes to the grave, and he's like, oh boy, you know. I wish this, he told somebody where it was, because nobody's sure. Well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, because he's dead. 
So it's, but he, he goes to the grave and he, you know, and he looks at it and he's like, wow, this is Alexander the Great, the conqueror, you know, the emperor of the Greeks, you know, he conquered all these things. He was considered like the pinnacle of human, human achievement, you know. He did all these things. He made everything very confusing for civil engineers by naming every city after himself. But, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because his empire still crumbled and he disappeared. You know, we still know his name, right? You know, he lives on in name, but at the end of the day, what did his achievements do? You know, made things very confusing for civil engineers and historians. So, you know, here we are talking about what happens, and the thing the closest we're going to get is Anthony Peake's explanation. But, you know, here we are, and we're really not going to know until we get there, I suppose. Well, uh, on that uh, cheery note, we're going to just identify what people are listening to. It's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 12:40 a.m. 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, and uh, we don't want to belabor any of the questions, so I'll just comment by asking a few more questions. Whenever I hear the the question, "What's going to happen when I die?" or "Where am I going to go?" or "When am I going to go?" Uh, I always ask the uh, opposite question, where were you before you were conceived? It's all about, in my opinion, time, consciousness, individuality, what's the nature of any of those things, and it does seem to be rather personal. My um, only, that I can recall, near-death experience was when Ben was a baby, and I had a pneumonia and AFib going on, didn't realize it. Well, the AFib was pretty obvious, but the rest. And all of a sudden, I everything faded, and I, I, I had the most incredibly vivid, more real than real, uh, vision, or if you want to call, of a lizard or a salamander sticking out of a, a man-made cave with these incredibly brilliant colors that I can't even describe. Now, uh, just fast, fast forward like, I don't know, 40 years, and we had a guest on the show who said, what, what was it you? Yeah. Oh, it, it was Matt. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can cooperate the story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that that, that is a uh, well. Tell me, it's an about? Aboriginal uh, creation myth. Uh, the Aboriginal in in Australia, that is one of their creator gods, and it is a multicolored salamander that lived in a. Uh, you think in, I would have known camp. that, having been in Australia, rubbed elbows with the Aborigines? But anyway, I'll leave it at that, and we'll move on to our second. Well, before we do that, we should yeah. perhaps take our commercial break. I thought we just did. No, we did not. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Another 15 years, maybe I'll get it right. Well, hey, you know, radio, radio is, is, is one of those things. It's a, it's a mystery, and we all do our best to try and figure it out. But you are listening to Behind the Paranormal <laughs> with Paul and Ben Eno on our 1,000th show here on WON, AM and FM, and we'll be right back. Fresco Italiano, a night of the arts, returns to the St. Anatin Cultural Center on Saturday evening, June 24th at 5 p.m. The evening will feature professional artists, an art competition by the Northern Rhode Island Council of the Arts featuring students from Winsaka and Cumberland High Schools, and a delicious Italian buffet served under the center's magnificent fresco paintings. Tickets are available at Bilo's Flowers, Creative Impressions, The Honey Shop, Timeless Antiques, and Vos True Value Hardware. For more information and menu, 
Visit the St. Anastasia Cultural Center website. You can depend on us for public service. Owen Radio. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on our 1000th show and 15th anniversary all at the same time. Couldn't have planned that better myself. And it just kind of happened that way, which is also a lovely, lovely time. So we'll, we will hop right back in and I'll kick it right over to you, Dad. Okay, our second ultimate question. Are UFOs slash UAPs alien visitors, time travelers, enlightened masters, tricksters, or all or none of the above? Uh, Mark, we'll start with you. Uh, that's a great question because uh, I've often wondered all of those things myself. Um, one of the things that I've discovered is that for aliens to ply the massive gulf between the stars, they're going to have to figure out a way to avoid actually going that distance. Uh, they can't go that distance. So they have to use something else. And that something else might live in the realm of more dimensions. Now, uh, we go down the realm of thinking, oh, it's a science fiction, science fiction. Except that uh, the lecture I've been doing around the country lately has to do with uh, what's called the Kaluza-Klein hypothesis. And uh, and Anthony knows, he's, he's nodding. And one of the things that I think is important is to understand that when we look at another person, we don't expect them to just go invisible. That's science fiction, right? However, that's something that happens on our, on our, our universe. I'm going to call it our membrane because in the string theory world, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about X, Y, and Z all moving through time, four dimensions. But did you know this fifth dimension as well? And in a particular variation of string theory called Randall Syndrome 1, uh, that fifth dimension called the bulk, like bulk produce, is actually highly warped. And if you can transition into there from the four dimensions that you're normally sitting here in, as you move into that bulk, the universe is warped more and more and more the farther in you go. And this brings everything closer, so that now distances are vastly shortened. So you could, and a Stanford physicist calculated this, not me, um, you could travel, for instance, to Alpha Centauri in the equivalent of a 20-minute drive, okay? Because you're punching out of our membrane, all right, to the bulk that's highly warped, and you punch back in more closer to Alpha Centauri. You do that a few times to get there. So it's a repeatable process. Now, how does that happen? How can that even happen? Well, I think, and to shorten this all, uh, there are certain particles you can generate called Kaluza-Klein particles, and they're actually, um, in this construct, they're gravitons. Now, Anthony was talking about wave, wave functions and so forth. All the quantum particles and, and that we know can be described as either a particle or a wave. You can have wave functions for particles. You can have wave for, for light and particles of light known as photons. We know about waves of gravity. We've never found the graviton yet, Right? It's elusive. However, based on physics and the understanding of the universe, it appears there's probably a counterpart particle. Now, CERN is actually uh, building another accelerator right now, and in part, one of the things they're going to investigate, big surprise, are Kaluza-Klein particles. Okay? Now, that's important because it, it's, we show now that CERN is taking an interest 
in these particles. Meanwhile, Lawrence Livermore, all right, in recent months, uh, had a breakthrough with fusion. Not really a breakthrough, but they actually were able to create a sustained reaction for a period of time. Now, never mind the amount of energy they put in. Creating the sustained reaction was the big takeaway here. That sustained reaction that they created points the way to being able to have a fusion reactor at some point. And guess what? If you're going to generate these particles, by the way, which are necessary to travel into that bulk, then you need something called a fusion reactor. You can generate them. And by the way, have you ever noticed that UFOs tend to be round? Flying saucers, remember? Or triangular? Okay. Now, why is that? I think it's because they're particle accelerators. And they're generating these particles, sheathing their ship with them, transiting in and out of the bulk in an oscillating manner. This oscillation is extremely important. So that's my feeling. Okay. So uh, there's so much I'm leaving out. But the point being, okay, that this methodology would allow them to travel incredibly vast distances for the cost of a fusion reactor. Now, that means the likelihood just got better. Now, I'm an astronomer, okay? This is what we look like, right? We wear alien shirts sometimes. Um, but, but the point is, if we consider that these distant uh, uh, civilizations want to get here from there, the only way left Okay, the only way for them to get here is to avoid having to travel through the here to there. Okay, they have to not travel the distance. They actually have to travel around the distance. They have to get around it. The Alcubierre drive was a great idea. Miguel Alcubierre invented this in 1994. It was a tensor, it's called. And the thing is, uh, this allows for warp drive. Uh, basically, folding the corners of a piece of paper up, stepping across in that tiny gap, and then unfolding space. Now, to do that, you can imagine you need a lot of energy, and you did, all right? Even though the energy has been reduced by, uh, by uh, Sonny White at EagleWorks Lab by about 10 to the 26th in strength, that's a lot, okay? Uh, even so, even so, it's still a problem because the energy now that's required is the equivalent not of converting what it was before, which is the mass of Jupiter to energy, okay, but converting the mass of the Voyager spacecraft, say, to energy, that's a massive difference, but it's still out of reach for probably about two or three hundred years. But this other thing, the Kaluza-Klein hypothesis, if true, and if string theory is true, which there's pros and cons, uh, we could be on the precipice of a whole new interstellar exploration campaign. I'll go. Huh. Imagine, imagine going to Mars in four minutes. <laughs> okay, and that's uh, and you're, you're avoiding light speed if you can do that, all right? So, because there's no speed limits out in the bulk. You can just punch out and punch in. Uh, and incidentally, last thing I'll say, uh, every visual observation reported of UFOs, they shimmer and flicker, they disappear, okay, and they reappear over here. Every one of those those can be explained with the use of Kaluza-Klein gravitons. Every single observation. However, I'm an astronomer. Something flickering and changing color, I can call it atmospheric scintillation. A star near the horizon does that. Serious. Brightest star in the sky. We'll do that. It'll change red and orange and blue. It looks great. Right? So it goes on and on. And then and the autokinetic effect, not being able to focus on one particular spot in an empty sky, well, that could explain you know, why people think things disappear here and reappear over there because their eyes are doing this all the time. All right? That's fine. Uh, so in any case, uh, we can explain it other ways, but we can't. Ignore the possibility that 
these are also Kaluza-Klein gravitons. Okay, Kathleen Martin. <laughs> I come from a different perspective because my background is in social science, so I do social research and experimentation. My perspective is from the human experience. And as a result of um, these years of research and also being the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, I was 13 when they had their experience, um, I have had the opportunity to uh, obtain information uh, from sort of the inside people who interact with these non-human entities. And I've also interacted with them myself, uh, being taken without permission, uh, being taken by other people's entities, and uh, being in contact uh, through experimentation where a team of researchers and I were uh, met with a man, Kevin Briggs, for a couple of years, once a month, and were able to use scientific instruments in order to measure uh, an increase in temperature in the room, uh, and it varied depending upon the dimensions that these entities were from. I've also had the unfortunate experience of having uh, these negative lower vibrating entities nearby and having one come into my environment and try to attach to me. So a lot of this is from personal experience and observation, but also uh, with the use of uh, scientific instruments that will measure these things. When these, uh, they called themselves ETs, I don't know if they really were or not, came into our environment, uh, each of us researchers uh, felt a very strong tingling sensation in their presence. We didn't expect this. We didn't know that the other individual was experiencing this when we were. But these entities explained to us that uh, everything is... Uh, in the different dimensions depends upon the rate of vibration and consciousness. And so uh, the way I've come to uh, view this is that, yes, we do have various dimensions and life in these various dimensions. I don't know if it's here, that it's all uh, around us, or if these entities are actually coming from uh, dozens or hundreds or millions of light years away. But uh, there is something highly perplexing. They are here. I've seen them. I've worked with 5,000 experiencers on these various studies. In addition to that, I'm uh, a UFO investigator and researcher. So I uh, had the opportunity to talk to many, many people about these experiences. We know that these entities that come through uh, sometimes appear to use technology, whereas in other cases they're just sort of popping in to uh, our dimension and they can be as startled as we are when we see them. 
Uh, so it, it appears not to be intentional, whereas sometimes it does appear to be intentional. The thing that is most perplexing to me is that, uh, you know, we have the negative lower vibrating entities that can attach to lower vibrating people. We have the higher vibrating entities, but in between, we have those scientists who are taking people to craft, who uh, are doing uh, their own scientific studies on humans. And so it's not this, uh, you know, negative or, or highly positive, but it's something in between. And there are a variety of entities uh, that are most prevalent, maybe seven different types that are most prevalent doing these experiments and interacting with human experiencers. And there seems to be intent there and a scientific program that's taking place. So I think that, you know, probably all of these things exist, but I don't think they're all precisely the same. Okay. My opinion. All right. Thank you. Matthew Muniz. All right. Uh, my answer is all of the above and maybe a few things that we haven't even thought of or discovered yet in, in this. <clears throat> now, as a scientist, I agree with Mark. The distances uh, uh, an entity would have to travel are immense, and the energy it would take to traverse that distance is incredible. Um, there's one thing in physics that, I, I, and I think Mark will agree with this, that is pretty fascinating. It's called spooky action at a distance, where two particles reciprocate over distance, and the distance makes you know no difference how far the distance is. I'm wondering if there is somehow some sort of connection that is made with with that. And you know, the, I think Mark's theory is uh, pretty sound. But one of the other things I definitely know from my personal experiences is there are definitely physical beings, because I've encountered them physically, had physical contact with them, a.k.a. Uh, got into a fight with them. But, you know, the, and I've had other people with me. And so I know that they saw the same thing, I saw the same thing, and we both cooperated what happened during that experience, or series of experiences. Now, as a ghost hunter or paranormal investigator, I've run into um, what people would call <clears throat> demons or angels in other cases. You know, are they alien? By definition, yes. You know, they're, they're not human-born, per se. But do they exist in our realm consistently? No. I think they exist in another realm outside of our space-time that we're stuck in. And I think it goes to something like what uh, Kathleen was saying. Your level of consciousness will also allow you to be able to interact with them. You know, These things choose people for reasons. And I'm talking these... I'll call them lower life forms in, in a sense, or more negative life forms. They choose who they want. And usually when, when they do something like that, it's because the person is vulnerable. I'm dealing with a particular 
possession case at the moment. This person uh, was physically as well as emotionally vulnerable. Something slid in and is trying to do something. We've done some stuff to help elevate her and her her feeling of her self-worth and other things, and now things have slowly, we'll call it, subsided. And the more she feels better about herself and her being, the, the less attacks, quote-unquote, she goes through. So, yeah, I do think one of, one of each of these things is possible as well as some things that we don't even know exist that, that could be happening. Okay, Anthony Peake. It's really fascinating, and thank you, Kathy, for sharing your experiences there, because one of the things I found quite extraordinary was when I was at um, uh, Contact in the Desert, I had the opportunity to interface with quite a number of the, 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 the delegates that were there, and I was intrigued to the number of them that had had experiences with entities, differing kinds from their childhood onwards. And the one thing that was consistent with all these people was their credibility. I never once for a second questioned their credibility because they had clearly had extraordinary experiences because they were speaking to me. You know, it wasn't as if they were performing to anybody else. We were having a quiet chat about things. And it seems to be that people have these extraordinary encounters with non-human entities that are life changing. But not only life changing, they seem to go through their lives as well. And back in 2019, I, I wrote a book called Hidden Universe. And in this, I was trying to understand the science of entity encounters. And when people have these entity encounters, to turn around and say they're just hallucinations doesn't answer the question. I call this the labeling theory of answers or, or uh, the idea of or I call idiopathic science, the idea that we, we, we label everything. We give it nice big terms, preferably Greek or Latin, to confuse people like we use the per word idiopathic, which is effectively we have no idea what it is. And I think in many ways idiopathic science likes to compartmentalize anything as an hallucination. But of course hallucinations themselves are a great mystery. And of course the very great um, psychologist, psychiatrist um, Oliver Sacks in his last book on hallucinations discussed exactly this principle. And I've spoken to physiologists, I've spoken to doctors, I've spoken to psychiatrists. Nobody knows what hallucinations are. And there's a counter-argument to say that waking life is also an hallucination. So in which case, if you consider that um, uh, hallucinations are brain-generated facsimile of reality, well, we're all existing in brain-generated facsimiles of realities all the time. And, of course, there is this term that um, scientists use to describe people who think there's a one-to-one -one relationship between what you perceive and what is out there in external reality or consensual reality. They're actually called naive realists, and they're called naive realists for a very, very good purpose. So for me, this relationship is far more complex. And I'm always intrigued about the way in which, as, as a sociologist, I'm always very intrigued about the way in which the entities seem to um, socially reflect the societies they're manifesting in. For instance, you know, we had, you know, in the 1950s, we had the Nordics and then it moved in and they seem to follow us as if they are melding themselves in order to facilitate and uh, support our anticipations of what they're going to be. Now, this does not mean they're not real, but what it means is they're manipulating us in some way. And in this, I'm reminded of the very famous book by Joe Fisher called The Hungry Ghosts. 
And it's the idea, I believe, that there is a direct relationship between entities. Entities are all the same thing. They just manifest in different ways. For instance, you know, we have contactees. For instance, there was uh, a very famous case um, way back in the, the 1880s, 1890s, called Imperator and Rector, where there were a group of English researchers trying to contact alien entities, which was exactly the same as what happened in Norfolk in the 1990s with the Skoll experiment, with exactly the same principles. And then we have the mystery of why it is that the aliens' technology doesn't seem to advance. I've never understood, well, I think I understand now, but I've never understood why it is that, you know, we have PET scans now, we have fMRI scans, we can look inside the bodies. We don't need to actually cut people open in order to find out how they work, whereas the aliens seem to be doing that all the time. You know, we can do that. We've already got the science that they haven't got. So to me, there's something more important here. And I'd say the parallels here are to do with shamanic travelling. We know that in shamanic traveling, we have something in shamanic traveling called the shaman's journey. And in the same shaman's journey, it is consistent that they have beings operate on them. They cut them open. They eviscerate them. And then we have the parallels then to the parallels that take place when people have uh, when they take DMT and ayahuasca. People go into an alternate state where entities in entities engage with them. These are the same entities that people engage with in UFOs. They're exactly the same circumstances. There's research being done now at Imperial College in London, whereby there's a group that's partially funded by the British government and it's partially funded by a guy called Anton Bilton, who's an, uh, an English multi-billionaire. And the work and results, I know a number of people that are involved in this research. They are encountering entities on a regular basis, entities that recognize them. Entities that they go into a DMT state, come back out from the DMT state. I mean, I'll give an example of this. One of my friends, Carl, he was um, he was one of the volunteers. He's a he's a university lecturer. He, he went into the altered state of consciousness with intravenous DMT, went into a place in the DMT space. This alien comes over to him and it taps him on the shoulder and said, you shouldn't be doing it this way. He then comes back into this reality. Two weeks later, he's in the he's in the um, the the, uh, the experimental theatre again. Takes the 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 DMT, goes into the altered state. The the tame creature comes over and says, "I told you last time, you shouldn't be doing it this way." Now that means that me that being was remembering him. And as he said to me, "Does that mean if that being was an extrapolation of my subconscious, it was telling me something I didn't want to hear?" And it seemed to have anticipation. People who take DMT mm -hmm. say that the entities, the what they're called the machine elves, Ter Terence McKenna's model of the machine elves, they're waiting for you. They're expecting you to come. So the question is, what is this big game that's going on? And I've come up with a model I call the egregorial. And, 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 and Paul and Ben, this is very much based upon your work. You know, when you've told me about the experiences you've had where you've seen entities that are manifesting via plasma, you know, I argue that the what the entities do is they use our anticipation of them and then they use plasma to come through. And again, I was recently down in Jordan in the Middle East and I was talking to people over there about the jinn. And I had the opportunity to go to some jinn caves. Sounds like a drink, doesn't it? But jinn <laughs> caves actually at the back of Petra that people don't normally visit. And in these caves, they, the jinn is supposed to manifest. Now, in the Quran, it says that jinn was made out of jinn were created out of smokeless fire. What's smokeless fire? It's plasma. It's another way of describing plasma. So could it be that these entities, we are co-creating these entities out of our anticipations of them? 
but they're just as real. So it means that a deeper level of reality, there is this world consciousness. You know, again, what was mentioned before about non-locality and the EPR paradox and John Bell and his calculations and the Alain Aspe work in Paris and Dalabard. You know, this, this stuff, the idea that at a deeper level of reality, everything is related. Everything is, is super, super in a state of superposition, which means consciousness is in a state of superposition as well. So the entities are communicating with us interdimensionally, but not in the way we necessarily understand dimensions mathematically. You know, again, it was fascinating. Mark stuff it was just extraordinary. And he has so many things I want to check up there in terms of Kaluza Klein. But effectively, what we need to do is to stop just going down this same old path of going about, you know, just, just doing the same things. We've got to do something differently. If we are going to change this paradigm, we've got to start thinking differently. We've got to start engaging the, the critics. We've got to start engaging the skeptics. And they're not going to believe, so we keep waffling on about the same old stories. We've got to engage them with the science. We've got to turn around and say, our science works. You can't do counter our scientific model. So I think what we need what we need here is something extremely exciting. And I think that the entities themselves may be able to help us with this. There may be some kind of cross-communication. But as you've, as you've said, Kathy, there are so many different levels of them. Some of them seem to be thoughtless automatons. Some of them seem to be just evil and wanting to just take people over. But other ones seem to be wanting to help us. They are extrapolations of ourselves, but they are part of us, if that makes sense. And I think once we start thinking in that way, we're then starting to put the pieces together as to what's going on. And I'd like to leave myself and a, a group of young ap- academics that are now coming up are really thinking outside of the box. They're taking these things and saying, let's explain them. Let's let's not pretend, you know, the old science is dying and the old science is great because without the old science, we wouldn't have this kind of communication. You know, so materials reductionist science is excellent and it's really great. But we know that goes from cosmology. We know from the discoveries of quantum mechanics. We know. And the new area, which is even more ex- extremely extreme, uh, interesting, is, is is quantum biology. And the, the things we are finding out, and uh, one of my friends that, that's heavily involved in this, um, oh, I can't think of his name now. But effectively, this is the future. And what we have to realize, and I'll give one final example of this. If nobody knows about this, I'm sure you do. But the Toronto experiment in 1970-71, where a group of individuals created a ghost. And that ghost became manifest. Phil, it's an Phil. egregore. It's, it's a thought form that is created. And I think it's really exciting times we live. But we all need to be working together to make this happen. Okay. Uh, ben, you know, we have to take a hard break. But we what do. Are you? Um, well, uh, I guess I can't really start a thought because I've, I've been digesting everybody's answers this whole time. Um, so I guess in the meantime, I'll do a little, little, little promo of what we're going to be talking about in the next in the next hour. We're going to be touching on a couple of different things, including taking a little half step backwards into how time works, um, and if we're really living in a hologram, and if we have enough time, who or what God is. So, you are listening to the 1000th show of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, with our wonderful panel, Mark D'Antonio, Kathleen Martin, Anthony Peake, Matt Moniz, my dad, and myself, here on WON, AM, and FM radio, here on here in the sort of warm Blackstone River Valley. We got 84 degrees here at the corner of Park Ave and Kennedy Street. We're going to take a little step away for our legal ID so you all know the call letters and all that good stuff. And we'll be right back in about 15 seconds. 
Just kidding. It's not allowing me to. So we'll give it another few seconds, and then it will allow me to. Live radio, 